Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 109 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Aviva's dad, Hans. I have had a couple of episodes recently with Gwen where we really talk about meaning making after tragedy and the way that you can have some good come out of the awfulness that happens with a child's death. And Hans is really an excellent example of doing just that. I am not going to go into any details and give it all away because I want you to be surprised and be able to hear it from his own words. But know that on the website, we will be able to click to some links that you might be interested in by the end. So I just want you to hear all about darling little baby Aviva and Hans and his healing journey and what he's doing to honor her life today. So please enjoy Hans, Aviva's dad. Well, thank you so much, Hans, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Marcy. It's really great to be here. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for what you're doing for all of us um, bereaved parents and grieving parents. You know, what the platform that you have is truly something special and, and helps all of us. I've been very touched and very helped by it. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I have been looking forward to talking to you for sure, because you have done some pretty cool things here recently that I won't talk about right now, but that we will get into in a little bit. So why don't you start out just by talking about your daughter, Aviva? Sure. Well, Aviva, first of all, I love speaking about her. Um, she is my <laughs> sweet, brave little bundle of joy, my angelic third child who had a radiant smile and really this contagiously cute laughter. Um, she had the best laugh. She has a zest for life and she was very easygoing, loved everybody and everybody loved her. She had a huge appetite. She ate everything in sight, even though she was only 10 months old when she passed. And there's a really funny story. We took a road trip up to Oregon and she got her hands in a bag of cherries. And on that road trip, she just kept eating and eating these cherries. And all of a sudden, when we got to the, our destination, her face was looked like it was covered in blood red and she looked like a little baby Dracula. I mean, she was just a ball of, of joy. She looked up to her big brother and big sister who were only 18 months and three years older than her, respectively. Wow. Wow. You are busy. Close together, all 18 months apart, the three of them. And she loved them immensely. They were smothering her. I've got a picture, but they, they were smothering her from the very start of it from the hospital. First time they laid eyes on her, they're just all over her and, and likewise. And she just really had this special bond and connection with both of them. One of the happiest memories was just a couple of days before she passed, 
she was in our living room and she had been eating these eggs. And my three-year-old son at the time, he was uh, playing his harmonica. And she, our, our family is just a big musical family. And she already had that rhythm. Um, she was you know, swaying to the beat and, and just enjoying her older brother's harmonica and um, you know, just swiveling her little body. And then all of a sudden she looked at the camera, I got it on film and she looked at the camera and she had this big grin of food in her mouth and it was just just amazing. So, yeah. Oh, what a sweet memory for you to be able to have. That yeah. is so cool. Yeah, and we were, were definitely lucky because she was born in January of 2020. And because of the pandemic in March that year, I got to spend a really long time with her. I mean, her whole life pretty much. So I got to spend 100% of her life. She was, you know, working with me, playing with little toys underneath my desk the entire time uh, while I was on these important conference calls. But I really miss those days. I, I really miss them uh, tremendously. But I felt that we had a very special bond, you know, almost even more than her, her siblings. She just got so much one-on-one -on -one attention between my wife and I. We were just the hands-on, you know, full care providers her entire life. So you were both home during the pandemic? Yeah, we were both working from home. We're fortunate at that. And and yeah, she would she would just pass right right back between the two of us and she was taking, you know, three, four naps a day. She would go down to sleep like a little baby that she was. Very easy, very easy to put her to sleep. So she was just just a very peaceful, very humble, very uh, joyous child with this big, big grin. I just remember her cute little laugh, and, and that's probably what I what I miss the most. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it is. Do you want to go on now and talk about what happened with Aviva? Sure. Short answer: We really don't know yeah. to this day, and and now it's been ten months, uh, so a lifetime if you compare it to yeah. Aviva's life has been been exactly ten months almost. Doctors uh, really can never figure it out. We never had a diagnosis. Um, we're not really sure we'll ever get to know. Um, it's been one of the most frustrating things, just not knowing what, what happened. So her, her illness, and, and uh, if you can call it that, her condition uh, really started her ninth day of life. She had you know, perfect APGAR scores and everything else when she was born, but on her ninth day of life, she um, woke up from a nap and she was drowsy. She wasn't really eating too much. We checked her temperature and it was down to 95 and a half degrees. And, and we thought the thermometer wow. was very, very low. And um, we didn't know she was, she was, she was breathing as, as normal. And, and so we rushed her immediately to the ER. And so she had signs of bradycardia, which was a really slow heart rate. She had hypothermia, of course, low, low body temperature. Many of her illnesses, she had diaphoresis, so she was sweating a little bit more than normal. But in this particular one, her first one, she had apnea uh, as well, and so difficulty breathing uh, overall. It tended, the trends tended to happen. She was in the hospital for six different times in her life, but a lot of, a lot of these were the exact same things that happened, and they tended to happen around times when she went kind of without eating for a for a period of time, kind of uh, after a nap, um, she would wake up with this lethargy. And so there's, you know, a, a lot of, lot of unknowns, a lot of questions, but eventually her later episode, she had hyperkalemia and her final two episodes, the last one being at 10 months and, and 13 days of her life, 
uh, hyperkalemia is, is high potassium levels in her blood. Mm -hmm. You know, for, for reference, that's kind of the what's injected for the death penalty, essentially. And um, usually a, a anything above a five or, or six is, is a pretty pretty serious condition, but her, her levels for, on her final episode got up to, to 12, 13. Oh my word. On that scale of, of 14. That is that is crazy high. I mean, yeah. Really, really high. And so, you know, if, if we were to say the cause, that was the cause, but what was the underlying, you know, root of it, we don't know. Um, however, there are, you know, clues on her second visit. Our other two kids who are older than her have been having these sleeping sickness, these kind of sleeping uh, spells, if you will, where they would sleep on end for 24 hours straight without any visible vomiting or temperature, any other sickness, and, and it was just sleeping and sleeping, and, and it was just um, very perplexing. And on her second visit at, at, at four months of age, I told the neuro neurologist this, and she had already been removed from the house for five hours, but he, he asked, you know, have you checked your gas lines? Is, is there any leak? Or what kind of gas do you use in your house? We were renting at that time in Oakland, California, and we had this old stove from the 1950s. Looked like it belonged in a museum that the gas company eventually found out was leaking a trace amount of carbon um, monoxide. monoxide. And even though we had a carbon monoxide detector, it was never going off. But when, you know, they basically condemned that stove, they checked her, her uh, carboxyhemoglobin levels uh -huh. for carbon monoxide. And um, it was at 2.2. So a little elevated, but not too much out of, out of the realm. And, and really that was the, the only thing that they could kind of go on, on, on that visit was that she might've had a little bit of carbon monoxide poisoning. But other than that, all of her other tests were perfect. Uh, her third and fourth hospitalizations, um, they tested her heart issues, they tested metabolic disorders, brain function uh, was, was all good. Her growth trajectory was good. Her genetics via whole genome sequencing checked out fine. Uh, there was really nothing uh, remarkable. And so all the results were unremarkable, except for one thing. Um, and, and that thing was, was really, she had a symmetrical abnormality to her globus pallidus region of her brain. And uh, this is within the basal ganglia, uh, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. The neurologist thought this could be affected by carbon monoxide, but usually it's affected by more of a mitochondrial issue or a metabolic issue. And she wasn't really showing any other outward signs of that. And so he was kind of scratching his head and, and perplexed about it. But for us, you know, we wanted to take every single precaution that we could. We checked the house yeah, through and through, got a lot of tests. Um, there's no carbon monoxide at all. And, and eventually, after our fourth hospitalization, we decided to move during the pandemic down to San Diego, where we have family in California. And so for four months after that move, she had no symptoms, uh, no, no other illness, uh, no hospitalizations, really no signs of that. And, uh, and we thought, you know, it was a thing of the past. We thought, yeah, that was it. This was it. And that wasn't the case. So about four months after, uh, or even five months after her fourth illness, she, she, she basically had the exact same symptoms, um, rushed to the hospital. But every single time she was in the hospital, within 24 hours, she was back to full health. You know, after having this bradycardia, they would monitor her. They wouldn't give her anything. They would just kind of monitor and, and stabilize her. And no medications were, were ever given. Of course, she had hundreds of tests, uh, every single test in, in the world, but 
you know, after 24 hours, you know, and, and two more days in the hospital, which she was free to go. And, and uh, the repeating pattern was a lot of doctors would con confer around her, look at her and say, we have really no idea. We just really don't know a lot of head scratching, which was really furious, infuriating um, and frustrating on, on my side. I come from a statistics and data science background and, you know, she had all of these charts, all of these records. Now she has 5,000 pages of records. And I was, I was just perplexed how they couldn't use any of her data, her, you know, ECGs, her, um, she had a Holter monitor, um, you know, any of our, our other symptoms to really understand and get to the root cause about it. You know, I, I know now that with healthcare, there, there's certainly a lot of inefficiencies and interoperability issues, but it's one thing that I'm, I'm certainly very passionate about and, and hope there will be some improvement going forward. But yeah. So the fifth episode, we thought, you know, this is kind of a recurring condition. However, we'll, we'll certainly try to figure this out. And, and we thought maybe it'll be another couple months. And, you know, the doctors told us uh, if anything happens, we'll do more genetic testing. And 10 days later, she had her sixth and final episode. This time it was preceded within the, the 12 hours before by one large vomit um, right when she was going to bed. And then the next day she woke up happy, joyous, smiling little bubbly self uh, as she can be. Mm -hmm. And then in the afternoon, she just started vomiting again and again and again. And uh, to the point where she just had nothing left in her system uh, to vomit. So. At that time, we didn't necessarily want to have another long stay in the ER, so we went to the urgent care. They gave her meds for vomiting, but the doctor, you know, referenced and, and called 911, called uh, the paramedics to come take her to the ER because she did have bradycardia. Her heart rate was in the 60s, 70s, and because of COVID, I couldn't go in there with her. It was, it was just my wife, and so I'm standing outside the urgent care as the paramedics, uh, the firemen. We're going in and, and, and they were calling her uh, my son. She, she said, they said, don't worry, your son is in good hands. And it's because she was wearing like this little blue pajamas. Um, it's like, it's not my son, it's my daughter. But she um, she came out uh, of the room and, and she had, um, she was on the stretcher and she looked out, out to me and she said, dad, 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 dad. And, uh, <laughs> and she, she wanted me to, to take her, but they had a, they had to put her in the, in the ambulance. I didn't know at that time, but it was, it was the last time I would see her. Oh my goodness. They, yeah, uh, it's my last, last memory. They took her to the ER at, at which point, because they didn't really, couldn't really access a lot of her records, given she was in a different hospital. You know, they started giving her a lot of meds, uh, giving her a lot of medications to try to stabilize her. But they saw that her hyperkalemia was was increasing. Um, they performed a couple different ECGs uh, to check her heart and decided to, to perform treatment. So they gave her this dextrose calcium gluconate administration mixture. And and um, I've I've heard that sometimes, you know, proportions of that could could have errors in it, but at 9.46 p.m. that, that night, she, um, five minutes after, or not even five minutes after they administered this, um, she ended up 
coding with with multi uh, system organ failure and uh you know they took her to the icu uh, they try to revive her put her on an ecmo machine uh, which is life support essentially they couldn't do anything we spent the next 20 hours or so in, in the hospital praying and hoping for a miracle hoping our, our little baby girl will come back but um i'm so sorry there's just nothing even to say really you know she was just uh <sighs> yeah she sorry <laughs> no it's okay um, i mean it's okay when it's so sudden it's it's hard either way. I always say that it's hard either way. It's hard when you. I th I'm sure it's hard to see these long protracted illnesses, but it's also yeah. really hard to have your little girl go from saying "da da da da" to just being gone so quickly. Yeah, and, you know? and as a matter of fact, in the ER, you know, she was she was recovering. She was healthy. Um, she was she was eating the graham crackers. She was she was in the uh, ER. Yeah, in the ER, she was um, she was perking, perking up. She was alert. I was staying staying outside of the ER. She was drinking a straw, water from a straw. She was breastfeeding. Uh, Mom had her in, in the ER, and I couldn't go in, and, and that tore my heart. But I had to go home to take care of the other kids. So around eight forty-five, I went home and got the call later, around nine forty-five or so, that her 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 vital her heart rate went down to twenty, and. Uh, we rushed, uh, rushed back, you know, 30 minute drive and, and uh, got there, found my wife hysterically crying in, in the ER. They had a social worker. They took us outside and, and um, we were sitting there praying and praying. And uh, I remember the ER doctor came out, he was wearing a bow tie and I, I was praying for some good news. I'm always an optimist at heart, had a lot of things to be blessed uh, with and, and, and fortunate for, but so I just expected him to say, you know, we revived your your child, Aviva's, you know, back to normal. But he didn't. He said, I'm sorry, your daughter's heart has stopped and we're trying to do the best we can. Yeah. So those were the hardest words to hear. Yep. You know, the hardest night we couldn't, we, we were in one of those waiting rooms and couldn't sleep and just just praying, uh, praying and hoping, but it's, it's, it's difficult. It's, you know, the, the most difficult time of my life, I think will ever be, ever be was, was really when I, I had a, we had to say goodbye and, and uh, we gave her a little bath, a little scrub down and we held her, put her in some clothes and held her in my arms. And I said, you know, daddy's going to make you proud. Daddy's going to figure, figure out what happened to you. And and help others, you know, that make sure that this doesn't happen again. But, uh, but that's really the credo that I live by now. It's, it's really, it's really, I, I want to make my daughter proud and I want her to still be part of my life and inspire me and, and, and bring, you know, hope and help yeah. to others. Uh, I think that's, that's what Aviva would have wanted. And that's, that's the promise I made to her. So. Yeah. And it's funny because, I mean, it's, you do, you just want to do something, you want to do something. And it's the promise that you made to her, I think you thought maybe it would be something different mm -hmm. than what it has ended up being, because still, you are trying to figure out what's happening to her, right? And, yeah. and that 
part isn't what you expected, I'm sure. Yeah. And so, so frustrating. Yeah, and, and the frustration was compounded uh, when we came home from the hospital two hours later and, and we got a knock on the door. It was from police officers and detectives that said they, they had to you know, search our house and question us about the unknown cause of our daughter's death. And obviously we we're just wallowing in pain and, and, and grief at this point. You know, we said, yeah, sure. Like there's eight, eight detectives. We gave them, you know, rehashed her whole story from her birth. And they took all her clothings and articles and, and uh, separated us. And the child protection services came the next day to check out our other kids um, to make sure that there wasn't any foul play involved. And, and that was tremendously hurtful. It is, it is a policy here in the state of California uh, when there's an unknown cause of death. So of course we, we complied. I mean, there's, there's nothing that we were hiding. Um, and so we just, you know, followed procedures and, you know, worked with a detective who was very nice, but a couple months later we had to go into their homicide uh, division and, and go go down to the police headquarters uh, to take a polygraph test lie detector to see if they could oh my goodness. get any kind of information out of us. And it was just you know, completely humiliating um, to be in this, this place where it's just trauma upon trauma. It's not injury upon insult. It's, it's, it's really more trauma around it. And, you know, just a, a couple months ago, we got a letter from child welfare services that simply said the investigation has concluded after the autopsy report revealed nothing and you are no longer under investigation and uh, no no apology just a letter yeah that that's it uh, just a simple statement and it's just um just another part of of, of the, the tragedy as obviously it is what it is so yeah yeah that's there's just no good way to do that to handle that i can tell you i mean i've i've been on that other side too yeah. you know i've yeah and i know they're they're doing it for good purposes and the intentions are definitely good just what we would have appreciated a little bit more sympathy uh at, yeah. at that time and empathy because there's just none none shown and none granted but i i know the procedures as well so yeah yeah I don't know. It just brings me back to different experiences that I've had with, you know, families that I've taken care of. I remember one in particular and, you know, in the middle of the night, I get called to the room and dad does tell me that he actually did something and yeah. admitted to me that he had done something. And yeah. and that, well, I just remember for me, I just I'm not a suspicious person by nature. Right. I just feel like everyone's going to be an amazing parent and sometimes people aren't and so that's a awful thing to do yeah so that's why i think some people end up getting more suspicious right because yeah. they see that kind of experience so devastating though so devastating yeah and, and the and the grieving journey has certainly been been long and arduous you know it took was fortunate enough to take uh, six months off but I, I, I would say, you know, this journey just never ends and, and it, it's a continuing process and it, it evolves uh, certainly all, all the stages and back and forth and back and forth. And, but in terms of things I've learned, you know, there's, there's really no right way to grieve. It's an individual process for every person. However, I have learned, you know, from reading and voraciously reading all these books on on grief, on child loss, on afterlife, on resilience, on finding meaning. I have learned that, um, 
you know, there's wrong ways to grieve and and a hundred percent, yes. Yeah, uh-huh. and so bottling up, bottling up those emotions, locking in the closet, not talking about it, and not processing it is is really the wrong way. It comes back later to bite you. But I I, I did not want to have that happen, and and um, and before this journey, I honestly couldn't even comprehend grief. I I, I didn't know anything about grief. Uh, I couldn't probably even spell grief. That's that's how distant I was you know, from, from grief. And, and now it's all, all I think about is, is, is really all I do. But in, in terms of embracing the process, I, I wanted, I'm a type of guy that wants to do everything to hundred percent, 20% to the max. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I try to you know, find as much help as I could. I, I'm usually a person that doesn't really like to ask for help that, you know, I, I can do everything myself, but this wasn't that time at, at all. And so, you know, reading those books, listen to your podcast, listen to other podcasts have been helpful to know that we're not the only people out there that feel the way that we do mm-hmm. watching movies, but, but also, you know, seeing a psychologist and therapist for the very first time in my life was an eye-opening experience uh, for me. I, I never really knew what they do. And, and, and I, I thought that I was going to be given advice and get to learn about this process, mm-hmm. but it's really not the case. Um, the therapists are really there to to listen and and to to listen and, and give yeah. feedback. It's a really poignant point to come across because I realize those are the conversations I have with friends and family when they just listen. It's actually the things that help me the most. And and we live in a society where you know we're paying these therapists hundreds of dollars just to be professional listeners. <laughs> when our family and friends could do the same thing they can could pick up a phone and could come over and, and and do it but it's it's awkward it's uncomfortable um, not everyone body knows what to say or do I didn't know what to say or do before this and so it's certainly a learning process from that standpoint well I certainly feel like people think that they need to say the perfect thing and say the right thing and they're nervous about saying the wrong thing I've got to say the right thing and really, they don't have to say anything. Just being there and being present is so much more important. I would much rather surround myself with people who just show up and are there and don't say anything at all than somebody that I, that I see has made this big, thoughtful process on I'm going to say the perfect thing. And then they have some phrase for you that they think is going to somehow fix things, which it's not, right? Because there are no words that are going to be able to fix you. Just There's just not a quick fix. And it's it's hard for people who haven't gone through this to know that that's okay. And really what we want and what we need is for you to just show up and not put pressure on yourself to be the perfect. Yeah. And I, I can tell you that one of the the most meaningful things that anyone has done for me is um, when we saw our brother, our, my brother-in-law on the East Coast and, and uh, we were out there, we were, we were there for lunch with him and, and um, he didn't really say anything about Aviva the entire time. But at the end, when we were leaving, he just, he just gave, us, gave me a big hug, five minute hug and just held me and cried with me. And that's meaningful. I mean, that, that, I still remember to this day. I, I won't. I won't forget that about him. But um, I think the biggest misconception about child loss and and how to react, how to respond, is really we, our bereaving parents, we we want to talk about our children. Yeah. 
you, know, you want to come on your show and talk about our child. And, and, and we're so thankful. You still have three that. kids and you still want to talk about all three of your kids. I know. We, we, we want them, you know, to be remembered. And I, I would say the journey to becoming a parent, you know, when you enter the realm of parenthood, you know, you really want your child to have the best future possible. And I think that transition, um, that major change in values and perception, how you look at life is equivalent in a similar way to a parent that loses a child who only wants that child to really be remembered and really be thought of and yep. talk about him and, and know that we're not the only people that think about our son, our daughter. Um, yeah. We want others to, to mention that. And, and if, if they don't ask, it, it feels... It feels much more isolated. It feels much more lonely than it needs to be. And so that's why that hug meant so much to you because yeah. you, didn't, you just know he felt it, right? You know, he felt it. And whenever I get someone to say, you know, I'm really missing Andy today. It's so incredibly helpful to me because so often I feel like I'm the only one, right? Mm -hmm. Or my little family is the only one that even remembers that he was here. Exactly. That, that other people don't miss him at all. So, exactly, and it's, especially as time goes by, you know, the yeah. first couple of months, there's an outpouring of love, and people really want to rally behind you. But, you know, at this point in time, ten months down the road, there's a handful of people I can count them that that really do check in and check up, and and so showing up is really, you know, the only thing that I would say. You don't have to do much; just a text, just a mention, or, or talk. Um, I think people confuse, you know, distance with space. And when you when you say you want to give someone distance, give them time to process and everything, that's fine. But don't disappear. Just yeah. what we really want and need is is space to talk about our child, to talk about our grief, to talk about our loss. And there's this misconception that we don't want to talk about our child, but you know, we really really do. And so uh, mm -hmm. I know, you know, I know what you're saying about wanting to try to figure out the perfect thing to say you know there's common sayings that we get a lot yeah he's in a better place now with god or or god only challenges the strongest among, among us or you know my my personal least favorite one <laughs> is really um i can't even imagine and that saying i just don't understand how to respond to that like what yeah. where did that come from you know some people even say i don't even want to imagine as if you know, they're trying to distance themselves from me. And I, I like, I don't want that to happen to my kids. It's like a plague. Like, don't talk about it. Stay away. away. But I honestly think that's why people don't, because they're yeah. so fearful. If they acknowledge that it can happen to you, that means it can happen to me. And that means it can happen again. And I'm just better off just pretending like it didn't even happen than acknowledging it can be, you know. And, and the other, my other personal kind of least favorite one is, you're so strong. I don't know how you do it. Yeah, exactly. Eh, so what, what like, else? No, I'm not. I am so not strong. And you do it because you have to, because there's no other choice. Is yeah. there just a choice to just never get up again? Yeah. Not really. I mean, not really. You've got other kids. You've got family. You know, you have to keep getting up in the morning. So telling me that I don't know. When people tell me I'm strong, it just makes me feel like, well, that's just a lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, it's, it's even some of my most empathetic friends, um, the ones that I thought you know, certainly would be there, uh, just just haven't. And, and I can't dwell on that. But but I understand that it's um, grief is something that 
we as a society don't really understand. Um, and, and, mm-hmm. and and I told you, I've been reading a lot. David Kessler, uh, he's one of the foremost uh, psychologists on, on grief, and he's written all these books, and he's co-authored a book with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And he himself has experienced grief at a young age, I think 11, 12 years old, he lost his mother. And from there, that experience, he really wanted to go into this grief process and 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 has counseled countless uh, of, of people. He was you know, first on site at 9-11, counseling people on, on their grief and years and years experience. But he himself, this expert on grief, did not understand exactly the depths of grief and, and what it felt like until he lost his own son yeah. in early 20s. Uh, he lost his own own son and he wanted to reach out to his clients and and he wanted to say i'm sorry i'm i'm so sorry that i really never understood how you felt yeah you know that that was very poignant to me because you know if if he didn't understand then i can't really hold expectations to others but what we can do is talk about it what we can do is is you know try to educate people and try to you know let them into our lives and really let them imagine the unimaginable and mm-hmm. I think that is really what, what I like to do and, 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 you know, talking with you or I, I'm happy to talk with anybody about it, but I think for, for us grievers and future grievers, um, because we all will be there, it's really helpful to understand what to say and do in those times. And I a hundred percent agree with him. You know, I, I lost my mother when I was in college and I really kind of thought I got grief and I understood grief similar to him. You know, I, I was a psychology major in college, so I was studying all of that as my mother was dying and she did die. And I mean, but then having Andy die, I was not even close to ready, not even the least bit. The depth of the grief of losing him is just so much different. And I don't want to belittle parent loss because... It was devastating when I lost my mother and the worst thing I could have ever imagined, mm-hmm. right? That was the worst experience of my life and I couldn't imagine things could get any worse and that is how I lived until something way worse did happen. Mm-hmm. And now, I think, and now it's almost worse for me because now I live with this fear that, wow, this was I thought I experienced the worst and this is definitely worse. And then I have so much more fear as what if it happens again? What if I lose my other two? What if I would lose my husband too? What if like it could, how bad could it get? Right. And that's, I don't know. That's why I still probably need to get some good therapy to help, yeah, help with mean- that because it does, it just changes so much of your outlook when you just realize the unimaginable can and does happen yeah and i i think we all do uh, i i think it's not you know lost in anyone a- anyone could use more help but i think that perception you know the change in you know what you thought of the world before and what it actually is right now is such a drastic shift you know the things that you thought were important before the jobs the titles the cars mm-hmm. what whatever prestige you know those things just don't matter and, and they just go you know much lower down that value totem pole um, if you will. And, you know, right now for me, it's, it's really about figuring out a way to honor my daughter and figure out mm-hmm. how to remember her and, and, and have people talk about her, but, but also, you know, do positive impact, you know, in, in her name. And so I've been going to some of these grieving groups. And, and one thing that uh, a gentleman 
who lost his son 10 years prior, you know, told me was, was that he really tries every single day to make one stranger smile. Very simple. You know, I, I want to make one stranger smile. And if you think about that, that's, it's, it's hard to do. It's, it's not, not an easy yeah. thing to do, but that's how he wants to honor his, his child. And it definitely resonates with me. I think I have this overarching, compelling pull to actually help others in some form or fashion. You know, I, I thought it might be in the medical space and maybe using some data science and applying it there, but talking with people and talking uh, to mm-hmm. fathers who might be struggling um, or talking about grief. It, these, these are things that for me personally, I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I get fulfillment out of I, and, and I feel better. It helps me through the grieving journey. Um, going to some of these grief groups uh, at the very beginning, I was trying to get a lot out of it in terms of, you know, how can this help me? Um, but the last one I went to, uh, there's a mother who lost her daughter at two, two weeks prior. And so she was really in the throes of grief. And, and uh, we break out in these smaller rooms. Everyone talks about their experience. And I had the opportunity to really talk about mine. And I didn't realize at the time, but I, I just start, started going on and on and, and just giving her you know, some perspective on, on the journey and, and finding meaning. And by the end of it, you know, she, she was, she was thankful for that. And, um, and I left more fulfilled from that group in a way that I hadn't, mm-hmm. a lot of times it can be heavy, can be hard, but this one, I almost felt, you know, just, just happy and lighthearted. Um, the fact, you know, not that I could have present prevented what, what happened, but hopefully help her in, in some small way on her journey. And on the journey. Mm-hmm. That's important. Mm-hmm. So I want you to move now into talking about the book and what you've done with that, because that's what I was so excited to talk to you about today, because you did really transition from, uh, I'm going to figure out how to fix this and how this medically is never going to happen to anyone else, which has morphed into this just beautiful, bringing a little joy to people in a way that honors Aviva. And it's just so beautiful and amazing to me. So I just talk about how that started and where that is now. Yeah, thank, thanks, Marcy. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, it, it, there's almost this overwhelming uh, urge of, of almost creative juices that really start flowing while, while I'm processing all these emotions of angst and, and fear and, and, and sadness, you know, in, a, in the depths of my grief. You know, it, it really... Re- revolved around uh, a way of, of really trying to figure out how could I spread the message, uh, spread my daughter's story, her personality, her character, everything that she is and embodies to the world, to the people that didn't know her, um, to my brother who never got to meet her, to her, bro- her, her own brother and sister that uh, might forget who she was given how, how young they were. But even more so to the, you know to that, how do I spread that message to um, the toddlers and kindergartners that that would have loved to have met her and, and would have been her friend? Um, I think that was one of the saddest things for me, especially that during COVID, um, she never really got to meet that many people. It was a very limited amount, and so she had a profound impact on my life, a, a very positive impact on my life. And the very first week after she died, I, I just kept asking myself, how could I? spread her message to other people. And um, that's that's really when I came up with the idea of this children's book. I've always wanted to be a children's book author. I, I really love uh, reading books to my kids and, and making up stories every single night. They, they ask without end, 
another story, another story, tell us a story. So I, I'd let them pick um, you know, a couple other things. And usually I'm talking about unicorns driving like race cars and in the jungle <laughs> and just make up all these like weird fascination, uh, fascinating environments. And it's, it's definitely one of the best parts of the night, very cumbersome, but but I wanted to do that in a way that I could actually incorporate Aviva. And so I love orangutans and actually the, one of our last adventures uh, as a family of, of three, uh, sorry, of three kids was really going to the zoo and had all three kids. We had a, a long day, you know, a big stroll and everything. And it was two o'clock. So it was, it was nap time. <laughs> Older two kids, they were just uh, lying on the ground. They wanted to go home. Aviva had already slept in my in my little um, right couch. She had her nap. Her nap was on the go. She, she was good, and and so the orangutans were the last animal on the exhibit, and we sat there watching these animals, and we were just you know, mesmerized by, uh, or she was just mesmerized and, and, and captivated by you know for like 15, 20 minutes by these orangutans, and so that's how how we came to baby Aviva orangutan diva. Again, it's, it's born out of that desire to share Viva with the world and, and create her positive impact. So Diva, because she loved music and she was dancing and she's colorful and, and happy. And, and that's really what, you know, I want to spread that positive message that she had. She always had this big smile on her face and she always cared about other people. She always made other people happy. And, and so it's, um, it's this book about this outgoing, loud, vibrant, singing and dancing baby orangutan who saves her village, which is out of food, out of bananas, from starvation by volunteering to face others' fears. So there's these bananas in this other part of the forest that are, sorry, jungle, that she had to cross this, this river full of alligators and crocodiles and, and then also um, face off against this tiger, which you see right here. <laughs> and there's little Aviva over the other shoulder. So Aviva. there she is. And, you know, she swings into the tree she looks down she sees this tiger that goes roar like roar and um and she doesn't know what to do um you know she's she's stuck in, in fear um but then she realizes you know don't be scared just and be true to yourself and, and use your god-given abilities uh to figure this out and so she just starts in the tree singing and dancing and before you know it tito the tiger he's based on uh, her brother hansito uh, Tito the tiger starts sway swaying and dancing, and before you know it, they're dancing together under the, the tropical heat. They stop to have a break. Tito offers up a piece of meat, <laughs> but but Aviva um, asks, well, actually, can I have some bananas because uh, we're out of bananas? And, and she, he said, sure, all you had to do was ask. And so in that part, you know, don't judge that book by a cover. You know, don't judge you know, this tiger. It could become your new friend. And she comes back, and, and she's the heroine, and, and she saves the day. You know, and, and it's all about being true to yourself. At the end of the day, it, it, that's that's the most underlying message of the book. Be true to yourself. Whatever you have to give to this world, do it and do it in the service of, of others as well. You know, she was uh, she was a fighter. She loved everybody, um, and and um, and that's a special special message that I hope you know parents and, and kids will get some uh, joy and smiles and laughter out of out of the book, but also a good way to really teach some of these underlying messages, which is, is incredibly important for these kids. So. Oh, it's, it's just a beautiful book and a beautiful story. And it brought tears to my eyes when I read it. I just absolutely love it. I love that theme of, 
being yourself and not judging other people right away or other animals in this case by what they might look like or what you think they're going to do because you just don't know for sure and just being yourself and oh it was just it's just beautiful and the illustrations are beautiful did you do those illustrations or who did those no i i cannot take credit for that um it was, it oh my was, word i got a guy um who actually used for used to work for scholastic books his name is carl and he did an amazing job and it was such a fun process to really spend all that time thinking about the paginations and where the words go and you know had an editor as well and and just making sure that um, that this was really the best book that, that I could actually get out to the world. And, and so, you know, figuring out the characters and and in the background, there's a lot of hidden things in there. Um, there's actually some redwood trees because symbolize uh, some of our redwood um, adventures. We got to go there a couple times with Aviva. There's a big heart in the middle of the book. And then, then there's some butterflies and, and birds, as well as a surfing pose from Aviva. I'm, I'm a big surfer and and always imagine uh, surfing with Aviva. So um, she's certainly doing that in this book. Oh, so special. So how can people get this book? What is, what's the process for that? Yeah, so it will be on Amazon on October uh -huh. 3rd. So by the time this airs, you will be able to go on Amazon and get it right away. That is true, fingers crossed. But we will be distributing on Barnes & Noble and, and other outlets as well. Just yesterday, I made an audio book and had really fun doing the animated characters with that. And so you can do that as well. And, and so we'll have a hardback ebook as well as paperback. So, and then I'd, I'd love to really, I, I really love reading the book to children. We just did a, a family vacation and got to read with my, um, my nephews and nieces and, you know, I got to you know, share her story with them who, who they'll never know, but just seeing them read it, it brings me so much joy, so much, you know, fulfillment, um, knowing that they could be touched by, by Aviva's life. So we started a hashtag around the book. It's called hashtag baby Aviva, A-V-I-V-A. You know, I'd really love to see smiles. Um, that's, that's really uh, the end goal, really to spread Aviva's message to the world. And just giving a little bit of peace and happiness to other people. Mm -hmm. Just so, so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just love it. It's, it's just so exciting to see something so beautiful and amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I did want to say one other thing about helping and about trying to do, trying to find some positivity around such tragedy. One of the things that I, that I've done is, is really connected with nature a lot, channeled a lot of my grief and, in nature. So I've been meditating and, and surfing, but through these adventures, I've seen a lot of this. I've had, like had these encounters with dolphins and birds and, you know, even sharks and whales, sea turtles. And there's, they, they just, for whatever reason, I feel so much more empathy and so much more connection with life in and of itself, yeah. knowing that these animals, they have this amazing gift of life that is so precious. It really is very precious. And I know that sounds cliche, but you just don't know until, until you know. But there was one particular event that happened. We were on the beach and having a barbecue and, and uh, all of a sudden this bird, um, it looked like a giant duck, big wings, was trying to get into the water, waddling it along the beach and, and trying to get over the waves that were crashing into the water and really couldn't. Uh, and I, I took a closer look and it had a broken wing. I just tracked the bird as it kind of flowed down with the current in, in the ocean trying again and again and again and, and ended up calling um, Humane Society. And so it's animal society to really come and, and help this bird. They told me it'd be a couple hours, but decided to 
uh, track the bird and, and fend off all the dogs that were trying to chase it and, and, and make sure that this broken wing got, got fixed. Eventually, you know, night fell and it was, it was completely pitch black dark by the time they got there. But I'm, I'm sitting there at a distance behind this bird, which, which I know now is called a cormorant. It's a, it's a master fishing bird. And I asked, you know, what they're going to do with it. They took it to a local, actually, SeaWorld here. And, and that bird hopefully will, yeah, is, is, is out there now and, and has this life that might be, might have been positively impacted. But for me, I realized thinking about this event, and, and this is something that was out of my character. I would probably never have done that in the past. You know, why was it so meaningful to me? It was, it was because I realized at that time I, I had control of, of this bird's life. Mm-hmm. I, I could do something to really help um, this particular animal, this life, um, this being. And that's something that I never you know, got to do with Aviva. I, I was never in a position that, that I could have done something, even all the gr- Dr. Google searching of the world that I try to do. You know, I just really never had that opportunity with wow. my daughter. And, and so, you know, finding meaning in, in very small things, passing a stranger on the street and and waving hello, or, you know, I, I want to, I, I see these babies, you know, up and down the street and, and I want to reach out to that father and say, like, enjoy every single moment you have, have with the kid. But uh, yeah. it, it's, um, you know, just finding meaning in different ways. And it's, it certainly helps me heal. Um, so that's been very helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful thing. I, I was thinking when you were talking about nature too. So you may have noticed, I don't know if you can hear, but I've got some wind chimes behind me and I when they when the wind really comes and the chimes really go I always feel like it's Andy's just singing to me a little bit and as you were talking my wind chimes were going crazy and so I was feeling like Andy's listening so yeah <laughs> I, I, I've to this whole beautiful thing I, I I can certainly relate and I certainly we've certainly done a lot of uh introspection about you know the afterlife and and where is Andy's spirit and where is Aviva's spirit but there's there's certainly um, uh, this butterfly that that just keeps coming around our house every day for the past couple months, um, same place, same time, um, and it, it's you know it might be me reading into it, but what it does is it brings me me comfort and joy, and and um, yeah. I, I see and feel Aviva in, in so many different things, and I feel connected with her. Um, you know, making the book, I, I felt af- after she she passed there's this void, this, this kind of like in the movies where, where the bomb goes off and everything's silent. I'm used to just, you know, changing her diapers and feeding her and putting her to sleep, waking up in the middle of the night, especially at that age, at 10 months, you know, you're very hands-on and it just felt, you know, empty and almost guilty that I wasn't doing anything for my daughter. And how, how do I find a way to still connect with her? And I think that's where this book came in as well as some other things I've been doing. I felt like that was my time to really spend time with my daughter and, and mm-hmm. I'm certainly going to be continuing that uh, as, as we go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I heard it said that, you know, your arms just kind of ache sometimes. You just, you're just so used to holding them and doing stuff and then you just you ache because you just don't know what to do, especially I think with you and your wife being in the pandemic and spending every moment with her it just would have meant even more so feeling more empty than if if you would have normally been going to the office and having periods of time without her 
Yeah, and, and, and her, having her play with little toys underneath my, my desk. And now that I'm back at work, it's just, uh, there, there's just, boy, this emptiness. But I will say, you know, as, as we are, you know, still lucky that, that we have our two others, um, you know, coming back home uh, from the hospital that night, it was, it was a whole flood of emotions, as, as you know, but it's, um, it was just this juxtaposition of, I, I really need to take care of myself and, and self-compassion is the biggest thing I've learned. Um, and, and so having that time, um, to do what you need to do, um, it doesn't, it doesn't really sync with a, a child's schedule of waking up at six in the morning and demanding for milk or whatever. And so, uh, so yeah, you know, uh, taking care of our other kids has been, uh, such a joy. Um, you know, you, you, you feel almost an even more profound appreciation for them now that you know how precious life is. You really, really know, how, you know, that cliche of live every day like it's your last, you know, you have to do that. You have to, you know, live in the moment, be present, you know, focusing on, on being present is, is something I do much more now than, than ever before. I'm not thinking about the past. I'm not thinking about the future. I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, what I'm doing right now, sitting here talking to you. So I'm glad you used that phrase, live in the moment, because you will not know this, but the episode right before you, so now one week ago, that was this young man's like mantra in life was to live in the moment. And their uh, foundation, their goal is to help people live in the moment each and every day. So that's a beautiful way you kind of transition to this, too. So you are teaching people the same way to live in the moment. Yeah, well, that... That, that's quite a surprise and can't wait to hear that. I love it. <laughs> and and it, it really is true. I, I think you just feel much more connected with, with everything um, by living in the moment. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Marcy. I just want to say thank you for everything you're doing uh, for all of us parents for giving us this space. And, and I know through that, you know, you're, you're honoring Andy and I know that Andy would be proud of you. So thank you so much. For everything. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.